spot, people we don't love so much, people we hardly know, people we don't like. The, the end of the practice, which I don't mind telling you in advance, because it's not like the end of a murder mystery if you tell in the, in the, in the beginning it messes up the book. This you could tell in the beginning and in the middle and the end and it would still be worthwhile. The end of this practice is that it's a habit of the heart and it should operate and can operate independent of whoever it is that you're thinking about. That would be really a fantastic way to live, don't you think? If you just had a loving heart. You didn't have to think, okay, this gets 40% loving, this person 60%. Myself, usually 80, but given what I did yesterday, only 30. And this one 100, and this one never. It's a, such a complication because we'd have to be always thinking, where are they in the hierarchy of how much should I wish? It, because it, it's not that that matters. It matters that we have open hearts. What if we accidentally had a boundlessly open heart, like the Metta Sutta said? Just so should we, towards all beings, boundlessly open our hearts. What if accidentally that happened? Remember before when I said the mind all of a sudden slams shut, boom. But, you know, you could open it like a window. What if it slammed open and stayed open? You know, just, and you know, the people up and worry, well, I'll be too, be too vulnerable. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think we'd be very tender, but I think we'd be quite safe. And we wouldn't have to live in any way other than thoughtfully. doesn't mean not making wise decisions about where we go and who we choose as friends. just means wishing well. Imagine if the whole world got up tomorrow wishing well for the whole world. So here's the next piece of practice, especially valuable for those people who have a little bit of a barrier for whatever reason, wiring, background, culture, what their parents said to them, what stories we tell ourselves, for whatever reason have a feeling, I don't merit this. It gets over the feeling that you don't merit it. And it gets over it by uh, taking that practice of unconditioned loving and instead of directing it towards yourself, directing it to someone that you love unconditionally. When the Buddha taught this practice, He said, uh, pick out someone who's your benefactor. My guess is that uh, most people picked out the Buddha. He was teaching it mostly to uh, monks in his order. Um, By the way, Elaine, back on your question, when uh, you were talking about safe, free of danger, the story is that one of the reasons that the Buddha began to teach... um, Metta practice is he would uh, send monks out to practice in uh, jungles by themselves. And they were afraid in jungles by themselves. It was dark, tigers in the jungle. So it was literally because people were frightened and he gave them this practice. And it set up a protect, they get to feel it, it sets up a protective shield around them. 
I always imagine, you know, I have graphic view of that protective shield like a bubble uh, that protects you from whatever could hurt you. There are all kinds of magic stories about the people. The Buddha himself, who had such a bubble of magic shield that nothing could hurt him. That's what I think it means in the sutta when it says poisons and weapons and fire won't harm you. I actually think they will harm me, poisons and weapons and fire. But I think uh, the way in which I could really be wounded, because this is a mortal body, poisons and weapons and fire, so I don't think it magically sets up a screen, but I think it protects the heart from being... um, irrevocably wounded. So the Buddha said, think of uh, a benefactor, someone about towards whom you could wish those wishes completely, unreservedly. So I think people probably thought about the Buddha a lot. Or they thought perhaps about their parents, if they loved them a lot. Or their grandparents, if they loved them a lot. And in our time, we might think of someone else. Parents, grandparents. Meant to pick out some teachers often. The instructions are pick out someone towards whom, uh, about whom you don't have erotic feelings. It's interesting. I, you can pick out whoever you want, but Uh, For years, I didn't, because that was an instruction. And the instruction was because when we became in touch with how much we really want wonderful things for this person, if our relationship with them is erotized, uh, the erotic element involved will become distracting. You'll really begin to be able to think about that erotic component. It'll just lure us into fantasy in some way. In my experience, that's true. (coughs) So pick out someone about whom you don't have an erotic feeling, even how much you love them. Or you can, and then you'll find out that that's what happens. (laughs) Not a bad thing. I mean, it's just interesting either. I've tested it. It works. But if your point in doing this practice now is to keep the mind focused and steady and not captivated by fantasy, pick out someone, think for a minute about who you hold in that place of unwavering esteem towards whom you could wish with all your heart May you be free of danger. May your mind be happy. May your body be peaceful. May you live with ease. And see if you could hold simultaneously the image of that person in your mind, if you could feel the connection of your 
relationship to that person. If some people don't feel so much, they know it's true, and they don't feel it viscerally. Some people feel it viscerally, but they're not good visualizers. They can't see so well. Doesn't matter. How well you can visualize, do that. Whatever you feel, feel that. It really doesn't matter. What matters is the steadfastness of your wishing. Thinking of that person, wishing. May you be free of danger. May your mind be happy. May your body be peaceful. May you live with ease. May you be free of danger. May your mind be happy. May your body be peaceful. May you live with ease. Over and over and over again. The mind filled with thoughts, when you realize that it has, begin again. Fall asleep when you realize that you have, begin again. Whatever happens to interrupt that wishing, when you realize it, begin again. It's the act of beginning again with steadfast determination that really builds that connection. One more instruction, two more. First one is when you say each of those phrases, try to feel in your body how that feeling feels in your body and would feel in another person. Free of danger. Mind happy. Body peaceful. Living with ease. If you can feel it in your body, that's fine. If you don't feel it in your body, just go on to the next one. By and by, you're likely to. The second and last instruction for now, and then we'll sit quietly for probably 20 minutes, is smile.
to feel the feeling of free of danger, mind of happiness, body at peace, living with ease. I want to talk a little bit about that experience before we have lunch and uh, give you the practice for lunch. But we've been sitting for a long time, so if you want to stand up where you are, take three breaths long, in and out and in and out and in and out, and sit back down.
So what we could start with was, how was your experience with that? What was that like? How was it different? What happened? Well, well, I did it for my son, and I found that I was much more focused and intense when I was doing, you know, doing it for him than for myself. It matters more. So what's your name? Parisa. Parisa. Uh-huh. So Parisa said, and this may have been your experience, that she was doing metta for her son as her benefactor. Um, and uh, that her experience was that when she was thinking about him and aiming her well wishes to him, was much more um, forceful, dedicated, uh, because it mattered more for him than for her, was her experience. I also noticed that you, uh, that you noticed that, did you notice that, uh, did you notice any difference when you were doing it for him and for you back and forth? Yeah, that's what I'm saying, when I was doing it back and forth. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I noticed it when I was like, oh, that's interesting. There's a lot, there's a lot more intensity here. So there are several things, Parisa. One is it's a much more, uh, it's interesting to notice that we have so much energy for other people and how come not ourselves. So that's a whole other story that is very interesting to reflect on and I invite you to do that, you know, whenever you want. For everyone that reason may be different. I bring it up particularly because uh, sometimes uh, it, it was so for me, I think, when I first heard about metta practice and mindfulness practice, because I heard about them when I first began my practice, which is now coming on 25 years, I guess. I heard about them and both, and we were mostly doing mindfulness vipassana in those days. And I had a feeling that that was the real practice. From that, you got enlightened. And uh, that metta was somewhat of a sort of a sappy practice, you know, that uh, kind of like Valentine's, you know, that uh, maybe we should give a metta day on Valentine's Day or something. That it was for people who didn't somehow have the uh, clarity of mind to see profoundly into the meaning of things. I have given that up. I don't think that's true. I think that they are both loving-kindness practices, and I think they're both wisdom practices. I think that you cannot do this without developing a great deal of insight into the truth of your own mind and experience, even without you know, continuing along. I'm sure Parisa will on her own, and you will too. Why is it that for others my heart is so open, especially for maybe perhaps my child more than anything? Why not for me? And it's interesting, isn't it? Because in the sutta it says, just as a mother might give her life to protect her child, perhaps because that's a, that is sort of in our consciousness as being the most um, ingrained, uh, the most intuitive, the most in, um, not needing of instructions level. Um, It's a complicated thing to talk about, too, isn't it? Especially in this culture where not all mothers are loving. Um, 
It's come up quite a lot, actually, in talking with uh, um, people who study with uh, Asian teachers in, in India or in, in Burma or in Thailand, where um, the sense of a mother's love is not as compromised as perhaps we have here. It's a whole other story, so we won't do it now. But I bring it up only not to have an answer for it, but to say, I think if we are paying attention in our attempts to be open-hearted in the most wholehearted way, there's everything, there's every possibility of it being an awareness practice at all. Why this and not that? Why her and not him? Why this and not that? Not necessarily to figure it out, but to make a space for that insight to arise at some time. So, thank you very much. What else did you discover? Yeah. Doing that practice with someone I already feel has those things that I already felt like a flow back and forth, but I won't like to imagine um, or send the visual to convince myself that's not really organic. And also sustaining that over a long period of time. <laughs> um, I noticed that my image of this person at first was beaming and I said, Well, she's going to. Which is how I felt after, you know, after a while to keep coming back. And What's your name? Sarah. Sarah. So Sarah, in case you didn't hear in the back, was imagining herself sitting knee to knee, actually, with her teacher, and um, feeling that it was very sustaining to her and gave her some energy to feel that this person already had that capacity uh, as a quality. So kind of you could use that person's energy to cycle it around through you. And uh, she could, anyway. And uh, noticed also that at some point she felt that her teacher sort of said to her, like, maybe get it already, that uh, it's okay. And that even that was a thing to notice. I I very much want to underscore the part that you said about um, using your sense of that person's ability to do uh, to be loving in an unbounded way, to open our own, um, to explore or discover, connect with our own possibility to do that. You know what's the image that I have? This is uh, an image from, uh, you see, archival old uh, Keystone Cops movies. Now, most of us here really didn't watch Keystone Cops movies. They were pre-talkies. So uh, I only saw films of them, but one of the thi- one of the jokes in those old films was in order to get in a car to catch someone, you had to get in a car and go fast. And the cars in the early days of cars did not have ignitions in the keys. They had those things in the front that like, like you wound up, like a wind-up toy car. And so somebody would be, they would, all the people would leap into the car, and then someone would stand in front and wind up that crank that cranked up the car. And then you'd hear the motor cat, well, no, I guess you didn't hear, I guess it was just a, a, a pre-sound movies. 
but you would get it that the car would catch, and then you had to jump in the car and start to drive, but you'd have to crank it up from the outside. And I think about that when you think about somebody else loving you and someone else's ability to love, that you kind of catch that energy, and it cranks up yours, and it cranks up yours enough, it goes by itself. And then when it goes by itself, you discover that you already had that energy, and then you can just follow it along. So we'll do different things throughout the day that will crank up the ability to get it started. But thinking of one's benefactor is really a wonderful way to do that. It lifts up the heart. Somebody here. Yes. My name's Ken, and I was using my daughter, and I noticed that it was so much easier for me to focus on her because I believed that I knew what it would look like for her to be safe and happy, and it would be more mysterious for me to know what those were. And then I thought, after you started to go back and forth, that it was very presumptive of me to think that I, it was any less complicated for her than for, for me, but nevertheless, it was easier because there was a concreteness yeah. to it. I couldn't give myself. Right. Ken's point again, uh, again if you... And I'm really struck by um, um, two people so far have picked out their children. You know that um, partly I, I think because we have that connection of uh, wanting so much for their happiness, and Ken saying he had a sense of um, what ha- what safe would be for her or happy. Um, but not such a sense of what it would be for himself, more mysterious, what will make me happy. <coughs> and somehow it's just opening the question, which I think all of this practice does, of what, what does it take to make anybody happy, really? And uh, really the kinds of mysterious life questions about what does it mean safe from what? Um, I, the the more that I do this practice, the more I think it's a wisdom practice and opens us to really looking at things in, or making the space for a fuller understanding of those really mysterious questions of life that you can't so much figure out as you can grow into an awareness of. I think it's a different. There's a, it's a different way of arriving. I think it's the intuitive part of us that arrives at an understanding. I cannot say tomorrow morning or this afternoon at 2.45, I'm going to have a revelation. It's just not one of those things. I can say at 2.45, I'll sit down and do metta practice, or I will do a certain thing that's a technique that I can do. But all I can do is decide to do something. I cannot decide to have a revelation or an understanding or a new intuition or a fresh vision of something. I can set up the circumstances where those are likely to happen. What else? Somebody in the back.
What's your name? Lisa. Lisa. So if I heard you uh, correctly, it's as we're wishing for people's well-being, there comes up in us as well often thoughts, maybe often helpful thoughts, about how they might move from place A to place B. Um, I think there are two things very important to say about that. One is that um, compassionate response is really, I think, so much a part of uh, metta practice, of mindfulness practice, Often, I, I think I, I, I'd like to start that sentence another way. I have, I in the in the very beginning, perhaps I imagined that it was just about becoming content in one's life. I find I am much more thinking about what can I do to make this a better world or a better place. How can I act in a way that's more helpful? And I think that comes from seeing increasingly how much suffering is so ubiquitously present. I mean, it's such a part of all of our experience, our own experience, everyone else's. Just the ways in which we are all, the, the, not even the suffering of physical suffering of life and getting older and getting sicker or infirmities or the kinds of things that happen earthquakes and floods and the things that don't have to happen like wars and injustices all of those things that we are really mandated to do something about but really the extra pain of the torments that we make in our own minds the way we um, keep ourselves from manifesting as loving well-wishing beings I think the more that we see that the more we are mandated to compassionate response. Actually, when we meet in a few months and have a day of compassion practice, it's somewhat difficult to make it different from a day of metta practice because I think that they are so bound up in each other that when I make wishes for my own well-being or for someone else's, that come out of my sense of how much I wish I were peaceful and happy and content. It brings up in me, first of all, such a desire that it would happen, and also often a clarity about what I need to do in my real life to make that happen. And also for other people, maybe a helpful thought about what might be helpful for them. And maybe later on we'll talk in what ways, you know, you have some insight about um, how their lives might unfold in a more skillful, wholesome, gratifying way. When is it good to tell people your insight about them? It's always good to tell yourself your insight about you. It's not so easy to tell other people your insights about them. Somebody else had their hand up. Yes. Well, actually, quite a few <coughs> things happened, all of them related, but I, I just wanted to mention three, and then I have a very specific question I want to ask you. Uh, one is that I realized that uh, somehow we were all in it together, 
uh, not just the person I was uh, sending Meta to, but that somehow we were all in this together. And that their ability to be safe and healthy and happy and all that was to some degree, I don't mean taking responsibility for their lives, but I mean to some degree then this all depended on the quality of my own life, that I had a responsibility, you know, since we're all in the same soup. <laughs> so that that it I don't think I ever saw it so clearly how we were how we were all so interconnected. Uh, and then that led to, um, this is an experience that I have occasionally. Uh, see, I'm unusually empathic. I mean, really empathic. <laughs> and uh, uh, I have a, I, in order to manage that, I do various things. Uh, but what happened, again, in this particular meditation was, I call it the arising of suffering. It isn't my suffering, but it's like there are layers of suffering that arise until it almost becomes like universal suffering. It, it becomes, my experience of it is a sorrow so enormous, uh, yet it, it is not, tr I don't mean that it's troubling, if you understand. Uh, for example, I did this same day with you uh, a year ago in January, I think it was, well, you talked earlier about what would happen if your heart popped open and stayed open. Well, that's what happened last time, and that that experience lasted for about two weeks. Well, I went to the opera, for example, and I blubbered through the whole opera. <laughs> because this, that's what art is largely about, is to show us the human condition. Well, it can get, for me, very overwhelming. So... Do you have some thoughts about how to be underwhelming about it? <laughs> <laughs> What's your name? Michael. Michael. The two parts that are so important there, the many parts, the two things, Michael, that are really hugely important things to talk about. So I just want to at least name them now and see how during the day we can, I can come back to them. Um, the, I, I don't think how, if I want to do the second one first. The, the one that, uh, the realization that, um, we're all in the same soup together. Um, that awareness on a, on a visceral level that nothing happens in a vacuum, nothing happens to one person, that's all happening to all of us, which we sometimes all of a sudden get in a very profound way. We can sort of understand it, uh, that everybody's actions have consequences on everybody else's actions. And nevertheless, different things happen to each person. Everybody has a unique kind of a life. Everybody's karma comes together in that particular constellation 
of events. Not every life unfolds in the same way. And not every single action I do has an equal impact on everybody, has certain impacts on people close to me, but then they have impacts on people close to them. There are moments in which we realize that no act is without consequence. One of, um, and at the same time, all right, we no, no act is without consequence. It has two um, implications, I think. One of them is a kind of relief about the lawfulness of how things unfold. Everything is the child of every circumstance that ever happened. So when we say, as we will when we get up to our equanimity day, every individual is heir to their own karma. It means our life is unfolding, each of ours, because of everything that ever happened. And the way of looking at people and holding them with that understanding, that really opens our hearts to them. Even people's lives are overwhelming in ways that cause us to respond, at least initially, with antipathy. Say, everybody's life is unfolding because of all these circumstances. Can have a response to it, but we could appreciate that it couldn't be different for them. This moment cannot be different. It's the child of every moment that ever was. On the other hand, at the same time, this moment is going to have a moment after it, and that moment will be will have our response to this moment as part of it. So how we respond to it makes a difference. There's a way of uh, accepting what happens to us and other, what is happening to us, what's happening to other people as lawful, not being angry at it, and at the same time accept, uh, getting it that what we do makes a difference and inspiring us to make a difference in the world. So even though it isn't anybody's control, it's in everybody's control. I think what that does in a certain way is mandate as impeccable a response as possible all the time. It goes back um, to someone else's question about realizing with compassion how anyone could make a difference in their own lives, how they could respond differently, how we might help. That's one whole part. I want to come back. I just want to name it. Um, that every single thing matters. And the awareness of that, which uh, sometimes arises in a way that makes us frightened. Uh-oh. You know, everything makes a difference. I don't know what to do. I won't do anything. On the other hand, can also really inspire us to really make our lives a dedication to the well-being of all beings. When I first heard that Bodhisattva vow about, although beings are numberless and suffering is endless, I vowed to end it. I couldn't figure out what on earth that meant. It just sounds like a very strange thing to say because truly I don't know all beings. My personal life is not connected to, in an immediate or a visible way to all beings. But in some way it is connected to all beings. And I get that more and more. That's one whole thing. To, we'll come back to it because it's a tremendously important piece. 
The other piece about being underwhelmed. I think about that um, a lot, about whether I want to be underwhelmed. Overwhelmed. Maybe whelmed is where we want to be. (laughs) Overwhelmed would be unbalanced. I don't want to be underwhelmed either. I want to be heartbroken enough. Because it's heartbreaking. Look around and see, what is the world doing to itself? What if everybody got up tomorrow morning and said, what is the world doing? What are we doing? Let's do it another way. Let's all treat each other as if we're each other's child or each other's parents. If the whole world got up tomorrow morning and thought that everybody was their child, it would be immediately a different world. How to do it So just a teeny story, and it's a story that it, um, that I am understanding better every time I tell it. A very, very twenty years ago, maybe almost that long ago, I was uh, on a retreat, and um, I had the job of being the towel folder. If you've been on retreat, you know everybody has a certain specific job. I was the uh, kitchen towel folder. Somebody else collected them after breakfast and washed them in the washing machine. I finished my lunch, went to the washing machine, got the towels out and folded. I did that folding in the room where the uh, teachers and the staff of that retreat were eating lunch. They eat lunch separately from the retreat. So they talked during lunchtime. We didn't talk ever. So uh, I stood in the corner and quietly folded the towels, and I listened to the conversation. And I heard uh, a, a conversation about what are what are you, what are your hopes for uh, yourself in this practice? What do you want to have happen? And people said different hopes for themselves, intentions. And somebody I truly don't remember which of my teachers it was said, "I want to have." Uh, um, yet a more increasingly full appreciation of suffering. And I didn't, at that moment, I didn't really get it enough to understand it. I really thought to myself, I had taken on this practice because I had a sense of the suffering in the world. I didn't want a deeper appreciation of the suffering. I wanted less of an awareness of the suffering. I'm folding I'm listening to this. A little bit of a sense of, uh uh-oh. Because what I think you get is a greater sense of suffering. It's heartbreaking. You look out, you think it's amazing. It's a beautiful planet hanging, this rock in the middle of vast space. We're making a mess of it. And really not caring for each other well and still fighting with each other. We still have not gotten over fighting with each other. Human beings shoot each other. It's the most bizarre thing. 
And in our very families, we shout at each other, we don't talk nicely to each other. Everything from ruining the, the planet and killing each other and fighting over borders. We say things to um, injure people's minds and hearts that they remember for the whole rest of their life. For any of us were to think about the first time someone said something really bad to us that we remember. And sometimes I say to people, uh, can you remember a, um, a hurtful remark that somebody made to you in the last year? Do you remember a hurtful remark that somebody said to you in the last year? In the last five years? 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. Don't forget a hurtful remark. Remember it forever. And sometimes in a more, when I'm in a somewhat more whimsical mood, I think to myself, I think about um, uh, sort of the one of the roots of American folk singing tradition, Home on the Range, where never is heard a discouraging word. (laughs) How we would be different people if we had been brought up with never a discouraging word. What if no one had ever told us a discouraging word? What if we never had that problem of thinking we didn't merit being happy? What if we thought we really merited that? that it was a possibility and we were worth it just by being people. We'd be so kind to other people. So just to finish Michael's question, I talk to my friends these days about, um, especially my colleagues, about what we're teaching. And we talk about what changes have happened to you. All right, we've been doing this for... 10 years, 20 years, some of us 30 years. How are you different? I think I'm kinder. Um, I told that to my husband when we were having this discussion sometime in the last year. And he said, you were always kind. And I said, no, no. I think that's probably, you know, I, I come from mild-mannered, kind people. So I had sort of a, a help in that. It wasn't that. I didn't have to get over terrible unkindnesses. But it's also true that I'm kinder. I am. And the reason, I think, is because I am more sensitive. I am more aware of the amount of pain in the world. It's like if somebody tells you, um, you know, maybe you're drawing glassware somewhere, and then someone tells you, you know, uh, you know this is Stuben glass. Uh oh, you know. <laughs> then you suddenly dry carefully, you know. Do you realize that that goblet you're holding is three hundred and fifty dollars? Oh, you know. Then you really dry carefully. What if we realized about each of us that we were really fragile as glass, easily broken, and very precious? We would dry so carefully. We'd think about every single thing that we said. We would be sure that our heart was in a good place before we went out 
and started our business with anybody during the day. Get ourselves in a good shape before we did that. We're not always in a good shape, you know. It's like the smile instruction. People say, how can I smile if I don't feel good? If I'm I'm in the middle of a heartbreak or um, I've been left, I've been deserted, uh, some terrible things have happened to me, I'm really uh, overwhelmed, I'm frightened. For one thing, I think smiling is a faith statement that we remember that there's another way to be and we might get back there. It doesn't mean I feel pleased in this moment. I also think it's a, um, an important uh, teaching in the sense of if I know I'm not in the place of that smile and I'm needing to work to get there, then maybe I know I have to be extra careful in my relationships. Not, you know how we say sometimes, uh, I'm sorry for what I said, I got out of bed the wrong way this morning. Maybe if I knew I got out of bed the wrong way, I wouldn't go far from the bed before I... (laughs) Or I wouldn't have too much to do with other people. It's much easier, it's much neater not to have to repair and sort of not to be mad at myself that I'm in a not in a good humor. We all are from time to time not. Actually it's kind to myself to let myself know that I'm not and to take care of myself before I go around and make a mess of things and then have to clean that up and make it much worse for myself. It's really about kindness and really about starting with ourselves. There's no place else to start anyway. As we start with ourselves and we end with ourselves, however much we want to change the world, the only heart we are in charge of changing is our own. Can't fix anybody else's. We might even have some helpful hints, but we can't do it for them. We can only do it here. And I really trust that it's catching. You know, it's kind of a, a habit that if I take care of this, I'll manifest in such a way that other people will catch it and might accidentally have a different world or purposely have a different world. I would like to give you a homework, an assignment for lunchtime. It's not a... I don't know if you're going to be able to go out for lunch. You might want to go out. It looks a little cold. We're a lot of us, so I would like to invite you to have this lunch quietly, if that's all right with you. You can have it in here. (coughs) Get yourself some tea. There is tea. You can get yourself some tea and uh, sit in the book room or sit here. Sit outside if you want, if it's not too cold or damp. Like that, we'll just take an hour for lunch. We'll be back here and sitting at two o'clock. Perhaps eat your lunch and then go for a walk so you have all your energy up. But here's your assignment for lunch. You might start it now. Look around. I'll give you one minute to look around. 
pick out somebody who you do not know at all and uh, just memorize who they are. It's kind of like a kid's game, you know, where you see what's under the cards. Pick out somebody who you do not know at all. Pick them out while they're not looking at you. So, so uh, you are now going to have, you are, you're adopting someone for an hour. Okay? Pick out somebody. Do you know what they look like? Close your eyes to see if you remember what they look like. Okay, now open your eyes again, surreptitiously, so they don't know. Look around, see if they actually look like what you remember. Can you find them? (laughs) Can you find them? I would like for you during the lunchtime to, uh, while you're eating your lunch, think about that person. You won't see them the whole lunch. You don't have to trail them out. <laughs> you, know, you know, you might pass them at the tea machine, but you don't know where they're going to eat your lunch. They might be sitting right next to you at lunch, and they may disappear for an hour. But I'd like for you to say those same intentions for them. Uh, from time to time, to keep it interesting for yourself, say the intentions for you and for your benefactor. You have three people, you, your benefactor, and that person. Then when other people go by you, like you're standing at the tea machine, someone's in front of you making tea, you could be making those good wishes to them, just while you're standing there. But it's it's like, it isn't like, it is a liturgy, this loving-kindness liturgy that you say all the time. Do you read ever the um, the way of the pilgrim? The story about a Christian mystic, Christian monastic, given the assignment from his teacher to pray without ceasing. Very short prayer that he said over and over and over again, all the time. So he was in a wanderer. But as he wandered and traveled from place to place, He made that prayer all the time. So you are learning a prayer that our heart will pray without ceasing. May all beings be peaceful and happy is really the prayer. But we practice on individual beings. So while you're at the tea machine, while you're in the toilet, makes a whole difference between I'm waiting online or I'm praying for the redemption of the world through the well-being of each of these people. It's a whole different story. And it takes out every other thought from your mind because you can't do two things at one time if you do this without ceasing. So from time to time, the mind, because it, it does for all of us, will do something else. But when it does and you realize you're thinking about what to cook later or what movie or what this or what that, you just notice the next person and you start to wish for them. And then while you're eating your sandwich, Make wish. You think about, oh, I wish I had made more sandwich, less sandwich, this sandwich. <laughs> In between that, well, if you think to yourself, I don't like the sandwich nearly as well as I thought I would, you think, may I be free of danger? May I have mental happiness? Because in that moment, you're not happy. May I have physical happiness? You'll feel better. May I have ease of well-being? Wish it for other people. And especially notice how you feel about that person that you have just adopted 
when you see that person, they pass by you, because something will change. So we will be here, and let's try not to talk, and let's try to be all finished with everything and back in the places at two. with um, choosing someone that you didn't know. What was your experience with uh, continuous practice? What was the difference in uh, wishing well to yourself or a benefactor, someone you know and love enormously and someone you don't know at all? Did you notice a difference? How was it to eat lunch and... uh, be uh, praying on behalf of someone else that you don't know at all. Any of those things, how are you? Yeah. Actually, yeah. Me, I, I actually feel very energized by it because it's like it removed the lens through which I look at people in life. There was no criticism or doubt or any of that because I was having to say something good to everybody that I saw. <laughs> and it was amazing. It gave my mind something much better to do. And opened my heart. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not tired. Well, actually, the, the Stephanie, yes. Yeah. Stephanie, the two very important things that you've said. Uh, one is that it's very energizing. Now, it's not boring. I mean, there's no end of uh, how energizing it is to be wishing well for people. And the converse of that, or the inverse, whatever, is it's fatiguing to be wishing ill. It actually is. It doesn't feel good. And the Buddha called um, anger or ill will one of the poisons of uh, life. And I, you know, we don't think about that very much. I, I, certainly, you know, if we're really furious, you know, you can feel it immediately in your body how uh, debilitating it is on your body. But uh, there's a curious way in which um, it is debilitating. I think always and fatiguing and not good for you. But sometimes it's um, uh, a little hidden because there's a kind of a there's a kind of a titillation in gossip, like talking bad about other people with one of your close confidants, you know. The, so it feels like it's fun to do a little bit, but actually it doesn't make you feel so good. In the long run, it doesn't have a good feeling about it. Um, any kind of demoralizing talk is fatiguing to the spirit, really. So I'm happy that you noticed that. Um, what was the other piece that I wanted to say? I was happy that you noticed uh, that it was interesting. Oh, also that when we don't have a story on people, it's so easy to wish them well. And we have stories on practically everybody. You know, if we know them a little bit, we make a story. Oh, it's so nice to have met that person. I like them. Or that's not my type of person. And then we have that story for the longest time. We make instant decisions. That's not even to talk about the people that we know well and either like well or dislike forever. And so hard to not have a story on someone and so liberating to meet someone without a story. In a little while, I'll tell you a story about doing that, but you had something you were going to say. <laughs> 
<laughs> so what's your name? Roberta. So there are a couple of things to say, Roberta, about what you're saying. One, going back to His Holiness uh, and the feeling that one has of relief when you figure this is all extra, that person's got this, you know. Uh, that, uh, like when, when we're wishing well for someone who's in desperate straits, it's really a feeling of wishing well, and it's colored a lot with compassion because we really feel the suffering. Uh, wishing well for someone who we imagine is not in desperate straits, who we actually imagine is in a good way, it's colored with sympathetic joy, which is the third of the four Brahma Viharas that we'll study together over these four times. And there's something so um, delightful about recognizing other people's well-being without uh, greed. You know, we just rejoice in the fact that somebody else has that. You know? We so infrequently do that. I mean, we like it a lot that someone else has good fortune, but then we think, well, it wouldn't be so bad if I'd have a little bit of that also. You know, they could, may they thrive, but, you know, I could have some too. <laughs> Not may theirs diminish, but, you know, may mine increase. It's hard to really sincerely just appreciate without a little bit of envy. So it happens, though, that when the mind is relaxed, it can just do that. Like, uh, I, I've mentioned a couple of times this morning, and people who know me know that one of the things that my mind does is it generally, it, it has the capacity, not so much as it used to, to take perfectly neutral situations and imagine dire endings. It just, it does that. Uh, some people, do, you know, you can call it fretting and uh, worrying and, Everyone knows that fretting and worrying is extra. You don't have to do it. It doesn't improve the situation. Everyone knows that. And some people do it anyway. It's just the way their mind works. I, I inherited one of their mi those minds. It's a karma. Um, and uh, I have a friend, like a good friend of mine, who doesn't have it at all. She just doesn't do that. It's not her karma to do that. She's a sensitive person and a caring kind of professional work cares about other people's troubles, cares about her own troubles. She doesn't worry about them in advance of them happening, though. She doesn't... And I, I, I admire her so much, you know. I think, that's amazing. You know, like when you see a bird with rare plumage or... You know, you say, look at that, you know. Some things are born in that extraordinary way. And when you can just do that and not wish, oh, I wish I had a mind like hers. So, you know, that, that piece of delight in other people's good fortune is actually wonderful because it lifts up our own heart and it really conditions the ability to wish well more. It just holds it up. 
So who else that maybe didn't talk yet had a thought? Yeah. What's your name? I'm Tina. Tina. When you think about it, this is a really uh, a practice of learning that we can fall in love with people that we don't know at all, just by wishing them well. Mm-hmm. I, I, sometimes you think, well, maybe I'm just falling in love with my own capacity to be a well-wisher. That's okay. I mean, <laughs> that'd be nice. I mean, it would inspire me about my capacity to be a well-wisher. Also, that when we fall in love with people, they look different. They look beautiful, however they are. They look really beautiful. I mean, you probably know from your own experience, from having been in, uh, you're not now, having ever been in relationship with someone that you were very close with, maybe a relative, maybe a, a, a love partner that you pick out, and... Um, when you're really in a harmonious place with them, you look at them, and they look beautiful. You know? They really visibly look beautiful. And if you're not in a good place with them, you look at them, they're not attractive. <laughs> you notice that? You think to yourself, I never noticed that really not that good looking. You know that? Then you notice that visibly they change. Or they look all of a sudden, well, whatever it is, that it is not so attractive as the other way that they looked when you were in love with them. But everybody looks better. They're, actually, their beauty shines out of them. And we really appreciate them for exactly what they look like. What else did you notice? Yeah. I'm Catherine. I noticed um, it prevented me from judging anyone. Yeah. So Catherine said two things, if you didn't hear, in the, but she said a lot of things, but two things I'll tell you back. One is a sense of really not feeling separate from people, really. You can't have judgments about them. You cannot be open-heartedly loving people and at the same time making judgments about them to this, to that, to this, to that. And the mind just does that all the time. It either likes people a lot, oh, look how attractive, they walk just right, they sit just right, they breathe just right. On retreats, it becomes so clear, because people don't do very much at all. 
that you could make such a story and that person eats too much. Or you could say to yourself, it's not wonderful, a person has such a robust, you know, appetite. You know, that, you just see, there's nothing to do at all with the act. It has to do with the state of your heart. Is it not wonderful, a person has such a healthy, has such a good appetite? Or if you're feeling in a grumpy mood, you think to yourself, look at that person taking so much, and it might not be enough for other people, don't they think? <laughs> it's the same act. But you can't do that if you're just wishing well. You know, may they thrive. It doesn't fit in the same mind. And the other thing was about uh, singing a song. So this morning I mentioned to you that I have a certain song. Um, so I won't sing you my song. I won't ask anybody to sing their songs because I think it, it's it's quite true that in um, in Asia, when people chant the Metta Sutta, there is a certain chant that goes with it. It has a tune. Uh, I, I, uh, you know, I know that tune. Um, when we chant it in Pali, we sing a certain tune. Uh, probably, I am learning the tune that the Burmese teacher of my teacher people sang. And probably in Thailand they have a different tune. And probably somewhere else they have another tune. So I seems to me, since I am chanting in English to myself, that it made a lot of sense to me to make up my own tune. And uh, when I first did it in the beginning, uh, my teacher had not said anything about singing. She said, say this with all deliberate care. And um, I discovered that I said it a lot, and a lot of times I'm just saying. And then sometimes I sing, and I, uh, I found a tune that exactly scanned the words that I was saying that had a sentimental connection to me from my life and from my history. So then I was singing principally when I was moving around. You know, when I can sit, can visualize a person, I can feel the feelings, I can be much more focused about saying each word deliberately. But when I was walking around or taking a shower or standing on a lunch line, it seemed much easier to be singing my tune to keep it going. And finally, I thought I ought to ask permission about it. So I asked my teacher, was it all right to sing? And she said, oh, yes, of course. The monks chant the metta all the time. So then I felt, okay, I had now gotten permission to do it. But uh, what I tell people all the time is find a tune that you like, that suits you. And then you don't mind singing it all the time. And then you get to uh, have it come up by itself as you're going about the day. All of a sudden, you hear it singing in your mind. And if the plane starts to bump a lot, all of a sudden, it starts to sing itself in your mind. You don't have to think, oh, what's my tune? I'll make it up right now. I mean, you have the tune right there, and it starts to play by itself. It like, automatically clicks in. So there's a great pleasure about having that. And sometimes people come on retreat, and they say, you know, I'm trying to sit quietly. And I have music playing all the time in my mind. And I wish the music would stop. People get a lot of old show tunes. Or, uh, all of a sudden, carousel or you know something or other. Uh, and they say, it's distracting me. I wish that it wouldn't be playing. This is a tune that you wish is playing all the time. You don't have to be 
getting the tune out of your mind. Sometimes people say, I'm humming that tune and I can't get it out of my mind. That would be a very desirable thing if you could hum your metta tune so much that you couldn't get it out of your mind. Because then we couldn't judge. We couldn't have stories on people. You'd have an open heart. It'd be great to be humming this tune all the time. Somebody else? Ken. I, I have a question. I need to clarify. This is about opening our hearts. We're not to, uh, in any way, assume that anything that we're saying or, or, think, or thinking has an influence on events with our benefactor, whoever we're thinking about. Right? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I'm absolutely sure it has an effect on my own heart. Uh, that I know from my experience. I like to think also that there's a value in thinking uh, good thoughts on behalf of somebody. There's a responsibility that I, you know, just thinking how I would, in a sense, it's a, it's a prayer. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, let's say, I, I said before I used my daughter, and should I go home and find out some tragedy befell her? Well, I would, in this process, it, it would be very bizarre. Mm-hmm. It, well, you know what I think? I think to myself, this is a very important question because I don't know how all of this stuff works. But I think what we think makes a difference. I think that thoughts make a difference. I also think that everything makes a difference. And I think it's a natural world and tragedies happen, and sometimes in bizarre ways. People have car crashes on the way to prayer services. I mean, in a a world that worked in that kind of a way, that wouldn't happen. But what I think is that there are infinite number of circumstances that come into making every thing that happens. And I'd like for good wishes, my good wishes, to be one of those circumstances. I don't know what, you know, what other things are happening. Uh, you know, there's, there are a lot of, um, in the last few years, there's been more and more material being published about the power of prayer. You've read this all in articles and uh, in all kinds of controlled studies people who pray. Do you know these stories, by the way? Am I telling you something you don't know? There are control studies where uh, groups of prayers are given names of people who are having bypass surgery, and uh, um, half of them get in the control group and half of them not in the control group, and these prayers who don't know the names of the prayees pray on their behalf. And there's a significant statistical difference uh, replicable often, in, at least in these major studies that have been done, that the people who were prayed on, who didn't know they were getting prayed on, by the way, not only did the prayers not know who they were praying for, but the prayees did not know that any of these studies were going on and that they were getting prayed on, but they got better faster. 
So it's a very big revolution in medicine, and people are really, how it's coming out in the journals, and people are being really careful about it. On the other hand, some people, and all of us, have had people in our family for whom we desperately prayed that they would get better, who didn't get better. So it's not the only circumstance affecting people. But I do think it's a circumstance that I want to pay attention to. It certainly makes me feel different. It makes my behavior towards those people that I hold in my heart with affection different. That I'm positive of. Um, that's why I think a lot when I, about giving the instruction that I gave you this morning when I said, say these words as if they make all the difference in the world. When I first thought about that, I noticed that it changed my practice enormously. Uh, maybe I was sleepy. I'd be sitting saying, no, no, no. As a matter of fact, I, I could tell that I was uh, sleepy because you can, so, you can get so routine in saying this. Uh, the words I say, I, I, I mentioned to you that the words I say, uh, because those were the words that got taught to me, were, May I be free of danger. And I can tell that I'm sleepy if I'm saying my phrases and I suddenly say something like, may I be full of danger. <laughs> and then you realize that you're really just not awake and uh, not really meeting each moment with clarity. But if I give myself um, a, uh, a task, I would tell myself, I think about a certain person, say in my family, a certain person that I'd love. And I would say to myself, everything depends on how you say these words. And I'm careful about telling that to people, lest they get frightened. Because I think everything depends on everything, not on how I say these words. But I'd like to say the words as if everything depended on them. Because I'd like to say them wholeheartedly. You know, there's... Um, I guess it's in the book of Deuteronomy, also in Exodus, but surely in Deuteronomy. Um, and you shall love with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. What does it mean to do that with all the heart, soul, might? means not distracted. Like everything depends on it. So how to do that without frightening yourself? So without getting magical about it, because then you start to worry. When we uh, continue now in a minute to think about uh, sending well wishes to other people that we have in our sphere of influence, people we love, sometimes people get um, a little concerned about, oh, I forgot to mention so-and-so. Like I mentioned all those people, but I left out so-and-so. And begin to feel like everybody's well-being is hanging on our remembering us, them at this moment. And it's really not about that. It's really about cultivating open-heartedness. But, and, not but, and, I don't know how things work altogether. Life is so mysterious. Just really mysterious. So I, I don't know... I, what, what I feel is like it's one of the factors that's creating the karma of the future. It makes me feel better. It's my contribution to the karma of the future. And I don't know whether in what cases it's going to be the necessary and sufficient condition 
for making a difference in whether those whether that person is sustained. You know, when you say the equanimity uh, resolves, every individual is heir to their own karma. It's a very complex karma. And my wishes are just one piece of it. And everything else matters also. So somewhere in between recognizing that everything matters and my behaving as if it all hangs on me, and maybe holding those two as not inconsistent with each other. Let's do a practice for a short period of time. In the afternoon, you have to practice shorter than in the morning because of the uh, energy levels. Um, but um, my friends and I, when we have short time to meditate together, we say, meditate fast. <laughs> and... Um, in a certain sense, uh, somebody said it this morning, I think it was Deborah, you don't need all the time in the world to get to be where you want to be. You need all the intention in the world to be there, and then you could be there. So let's get ready for what's going to be the work of the rest of the afternoon, which is really exploring how wide we can open our hearts to all beings by really... Um, um, powering up with uh, by uh, bringing into our hearts all the people that we easily let into our hearts. So sit in a way that's comfortable for you. Let your body relax. Make it alert. Feel your breathing for a minute. (coughs) Smile. Think of someone that you haven't thought of yet. Not yourself, not your benefactor, not a person you don't know at all. Someone close to you in your life. Maybe your kin, maybe your life partner, relative, imagine that person sitting with you. And wish them well in those four phrases or whatever four phrases you have been practicing. When we start, let me say those phrases for that person three times all the way through in your mind. Each time, see if you can feel it a little bit more deeply. After three times, find a new person in your mind from your family or your friends, or your colleagues, your associates, someone you know and like a lot. This does not have to be the category of completely benefactor, uncomplicated affection. Someone you like. Three times those four wishes 
we'll do it for 15 minutes. Maybe go through 15 people. <laughs>